Hey, welcome to Monday Night School. Monday morning, got some business to take care of, but I thought I'd do a show while I'm waiting for that. And, uh, you know, I just want to remind everybody to shop local. You better shop local. Hey, have you been shopping local? You been shopping local? You know, you see stickers that say that, and I was thinking this morning how whenever you see somebody with a shop local sticker on the back of their car, there's a 99% chance they're a globalist. (laughs) There's a 99% chance whenever you see a shop local sticker or support local blah blah, support local blah blah blah, whenever you see that, there's a chance that that person probably has the most severe opinion on world events. There's a chance that that person has some highly nuanced, emotional opinion on immigration in Europe. Yet they're the ones who are like, keep things focused on on local. Keep it local, baby. (laughs) Keep it local. Uh, But there's there's a strong chance that that person is far more concerned with what's going on on the other side of the world And not even simply in a compassionate sense. Like, I have compassion for what's going on on the other side of the world. But, and I might have opinions on some things. Like, I do have some opinions on, you know, Sweden, where I have friends and relatives. I have some opinions on what goes on there, I guess, because I do feel some ancestral connection to it. But that said, I wouldn't try to tell them what how things actually work there or what they should do. I wouldn't actually sit down with a Swede and say, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do in your own country. You know, I wouldn't actually say that. But it's just funny to me that I feel like so many things... You know, when you say one thing, so often it's easy to be the complete opposite of that. And I do feel that a little bit with these shop local type people or just support local anything, which should be the that should be the bumper sticker. Support local anything. And the whole idea of shopping local or supporting local businesses, that makes complete sense, of course. It makes sense that you would want to support businesses and products from your immediate environment. And it makes the most sense with things like, I mean, it makes complete sense why you want to buy local bread. Why you, you know, it makes complete sense why you would prefer to buy locally baked bread opposed to mass produced bread that's shipped from elsewhere and you buy it at the supermarket. I mean, it makes sense because, I mean, you buy that bread and it's not very good. You buy that bread and it's just not very good. You know, but it's true. You know, it makes sense why you would want, if you're going to get bread and you can afford it, and I don't buy any bread. It's been a long time since I bought bread. I'm not doing a very good job supporting any kind of bread, local or global bread. Is this global bread? Just wait. Just you wait. Just you wait until the globalists are running things and you'll be eating a lot of global bread. But, uh... You're not even going to have a choice of locally baked bread. Uh, But, you know, global bread, national bread, it's obviously not very good. It's not ideal. So it makes sense why you would want local bread, fresh bread. Many things like that. You know, especially when it comes to food, supporting local businesses makes sense. Although you think about it, and not that long ago... If you had said to somebody, support local businesses, shop local, they would say, what are you talking about? Because they would have no idea, they would have no clue, because everything in their world was local. It wasn't that long ago that that was just a fact of life. It says a lot that you have to stress this idea of shopping local. It shows you how far we've moved away from that. I want to make a bumper sticker that says, support local gossip. Gossip about local issues. Support localized opinions. But it is funny, yeah. It seems like the, the same people who are going to like encourage you to shop local and support local businesses are the same people who will be like, can you believe Brexit? Can you believe Brexit? Shop local. 
you know, I'm not trying to call them hypocrites, but I do think it's funny how people who would fall into the category of globalist friendly, at the very least, also seem to be the people who are pushing this shop local idea. Which, you know, I, I don't know. I don't I guess I don't feel that passionate about local businesses and you know, you also hear it with local music. Support local music, and it's like why? Why? Because I think there are some things that really transcend locality. And every once in a while, yeah, there's something regional. I mean, I don't even know if this happens anymore. But, you know, there used to be regional phenomena in music where a certain region would produce a bunch of bands that were doing something kind of similar but it was different from things that were going on in the other type, other parts of the world. And I mean, this is how everything works. But you can come to understand how everything works by looking at niche interests. And I mean, it's, it's for the same reason that like Grindcore came out of England during the 1980s. And there was a lot of interconnectivity between people and bands. It was a regional idea. And not not that it was limited to that region, but obviously something different was going on among a certain group of people in a certain place. I mean, you see it with other genres of metal. You see it with everything. You see it with virtually everything, and especially the farther back you go. Because, again, it's it's sort of the same idea as... So, you know, support local music. Like, if you said that in 1850, people would be like, what else is there? What do you mean support local? What does that even mean? You know, so it's it's really a modern phenomenon that we can even make the distinction between supporting something local and not. Not to say that there weren't exports, not to say that things weren't being imported, but it's just you you really wouldn't have made a conscious choice to support local things. Because that was just what was there. That's what was going to be there. Um, But yeah, just to finish that thought, you know, you would see things come out of a certain region, ideas. And while it was, you know, obviously associated with a particular place, it appealed nationally. It appealed internationally. And that's how a lot of genres start. That's how a lot of subgenres start in music in particular is that a group of bands, a group of individuals does something and they're closely related to each other, if not involved with each other's work. And then that kind of establishes a sound that then becomes popular or has some sort of appeal internationally. And then that becomes a subgenre. And it started locally, but you wouldn't really, you know, you know, you don't necessarily limit it to that locale. But when you think about local music, in most cases, it's it's just, who even knows what that is? Who even knows what local music means? And when, when people say support local music, what are they even asking for? <laughs> Usually that's somebody who's in a heavily localized band. Usually that's somebody who's in a band that has no appeal outside of their immediate friends and maybe some local people who like to support local music. And they're just trying to pressure you because <laughs> they're not going to appeal to anybody you know, outside of that. So they're just trying to kind of pressure you. It's like... Uh, they know that, they, they know that like, what they're doing has no broad appeal. Not that things need broad appeal, but just they, they know that it has no broad appeal. So it's like, you better support me. You better support something that's going on in your community. Support local music. Support loco music, man. Support loco. Shop loco. Shop crazy. That's sort of what ordering things online is, shopping loco. I mean, when you think about how much you can get, how many weird things you can buy from anywhere. You know, after my mom passed away, she had ordered some Christmas presents because, you know, she died not long before Christmas. And so she had ordered some gifts for my sister, brother-in-law, and I. And so the packages were coming, uh, you know, after she passed. But months later, months, 
I want to say like maybe even six months. I got a little package addressed to her from China. And it had a spider, a metal spider in it. <laughs> it was a, I think it was a ring. I want to say it was some sort of, uh, some sort of jewelry maybe, but it was just this like solid metal, this like steel spider. I gave it to a friend of mine who's into that kind of thing, but uh, who's into? I gave it to a friend of mine. Uh, uh, she's into steel spiders. Uh, but it was just a really weird thing to receive, and just the idea of receiving. I mean, imagine explaining that to somebody a hundred years ago. Maybe they would have understood it better. Maybe that's one of those things that would have made more sense a hundred years ago. You know, I received a parcel. I received a parcel from China, and it had a metal spider in it. And it was addressed to my deceased, my recently deceased mother. Bizarre. But you think about just that. Like, that's shopping loco. Like, what? I can't imagine her ordering that. I was like, who did she order this for? I mean, it was kind of ominous, but I decided I decided not to let it be ominous. It was so obviously ominous. Like, you know, Coronavi had just hit. And, you know, we all know the role China has in that. And so Coronavi had just hit. And I receive a, a small, a tiny little package. Like a tiny little, and, and in a weird, like, plastic envelope, but a tiny plastic envelope. I mean, it looked Chinese. It looked Chinese. It did, though. It, it, you know, it had Chinese characters on it. And, you know, just to receive a tiny package, like right when Coronavi hits, and to have it be from China containing a metal spider addressed to my mom who had passed away. Just a bizarre little thing. And that's shopping loco. But shopping loco, yeah, it's, it's being able to buy anything, anywhere, at any time. All kinds of weird things. All kinds of strange things you can get. Um, but, uh, yeah, that pressure to support local anything. Support local anything, dude. Support local everything. But I'm just not a communal person. You know, I, I know on this show I talk about how you should have good relationships with your neighbors, which water's wet, you know, of course, but it, it does seem like it needs to be stressed these days. It does seem like some of these things that have been obvious throughout history do need to be stressed, because that's another thing, too, is there are people who will have a shop local sticker on their car, and I know I'm projecting a whole bunch onto, like, some hypothetical person who has a shop local sticker, but I've known a lot of these people, and someone will have a shop local sticker, but yet they don't say hi to their neighbor. You know, and then they have an opinion on Brexit. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's that's the sort of person we're dealing with here. Those people are, that's not some weird, uh, that's not some weird person I've imagined. That's a real type of person now, like a person who, who hates their neighbor for some bogus reason, who is like typing furiously online about what people in Europe should be doing. And then they're telling you you need to support local businesses and music. It's all part of the pathology. It's all part of that. The local pathology. Except it's not local at all. These people are hiding behind stickers like Shop Local. When in reality, they're, they've been hijacked. They've been mentally hijacked by the globalist pathology. And I've decided, you know, I've been hesitant to, to talk about globalism, but I've decided just to use it, even though it's a term that's used by all kinds of people, people that I don't agree with, people who are easy to mock, I'm just throwing that out the window and I'm just going to use it full force. Why not? You got to have some solidarity with something. And, and I want to clarify, too, that I don't see globalism as, like, I don't, I, I don't think that because, well, again, I'll, I'll say I don't care about supporting local things. Like, some local things make sense. It makes sense that just some very practical things that you need or want would be better if they were produced locally. Like, I would rather buy meat and bread, like, like particularly food, if I can. You know, sometimes it's more expensive. Sometimes I can't afford that. But, you know, I would prefer to get, you know, stuff that I consume 
you know, the closer it is to me, the better. I just, and I feel like that's just a natural thing. I mean, that's like living off the land in a way. It's even though you're not the one doing it, even though you're not going out to the forest by your house to collect berries, it's sort of a version of that. It's, it's at least closer to that. So that makes sense to me. But beyond that, I don't feel like I have any real local loyalty. I have loyalty to the land itself. Like being from the Pacific Northwest, being from the state of Washington, I do feel a close connection to the land that I've lived in, to the trees, to just this environment. I feel very loyal to this environment. But when it comes to all of these human artifices, I don't really feel that much. I've never been a very local, community-oriented person. And this town has some of that. This town has its, you know, its communal, community festivals, it has a lot of people who stress this sort of these sort of communal values and i'm just not drawn to that you know i don't have a strong sense of community in that way like while i do think you should have a good relationship with your neighbors you should be a dependable person if people you know in the area need something from you i believe in all of the, i believe in being a decent person and i believe in being a decent person in your community. But the idea of celebrating community and all of that, it just doesn't entirely sit with me very well. I guess it's an aesthetic thing because that always verges into like folk art and not cool outsider folk art, if that even exists anymore. But, you know, it verges into this like kind of just repellent aesthetic for me because I, you know, as you know, as you know, I do have these very visceral reactions to certain aesthetics. And when people are stressing local community, it's like the standards of aesthetic just drop. And not that I don't think those things should be exclusive, because I don't think they should be. Like, if you are focused on, you know, reinforcing local community, you should be as inclusive as you can be to anybody who's decent and wants to uphold goodwill in the community. Like, you should give a platform to somebody's awful folk art. You should give a platform to somebody's arts and crafts. But that said, you know, it's not your job to support that just because it exists in your community. It's not your job to support some awful band just because they're from your town. And there's people I know... I wouldn't call them friends, and I, I wouldn't call them enemies either. Uh, but there's people I know where it's like their entire aesthetic and their entire taste in something like music, for example, is all based on local bands. And that's totally fine. I mean, that, it makes sense. It's not like it doesn't make sense. But it's just, to me, it's just like, I don't know. I just find that sort of approach repellent. Like that sort of local pride almost a towny thing kind of a towny sort of uh i'm from here and uh this is my tribe i think one of the reasons too why these sort of communal activities and this like celebrate community i think one reason why i'm not a huge fan of that too at least here who knows maybe if i lived somewhere else i'd feel a little different but living in olympia washington it's heavily politicized it's not just that there's this sort of folk art color splashed around, just we're splashing paint around. We're just splashing a whole bunch of paint around. That's what it looks like. That's if I had to sum up, you know, what the aesthetic of the community here is, community with a capital C, I would say it just it looks like they splashed a bunch of colors of paint all around. And then looked at it and said, I love it. Shop local. Support local. Support local splotches of colorful paint all over everything. I'm just not into that aesthetic. It's like, oh, here's a, a poorly painted fish. And it's yellow and green and purple and red. And let's put it on the side of this building. You know, it's, I don't know. That's how I feel about it. I'm not telling people what to do. I'm not because I mean this this town too. It has a lot of paintings on the sides of buildings, and that's a very community. The, the community has its aesthetic that's been well established here for many years, long before I lived here. 
and they'll they'll do a mural on the side of a building, and that's what it looks like, you know. And I mean, that's what you get. That's what you get from these communal efforts is you get a mural on the side of the building that you never want to look at. Some every once in a while there'll be a good one. It's not like I'm it's not like I'm so principled in my opposition to this that I can't possibly admit when something looks decent, but a lot of times I just like, man, and I would never want to I, w- I would never want these people to stop doing what they're doing, but I just I personally don't buy into it. I don't like it. Shop loco. Shop loco, baby. Shop for loco. Um, but, uh, yeah, and, and I mean, it, like, again, though, it, again, it's politicized. Like, when, when there is some sort of community activity here or communal effort, it is heavily, heavily politicized where it's people who generally are on the same side of the fence, they generally have, if not the same beliefs, similar. And I don't think it's entirely that inclusive. Not that I'm looking to be included, but I don't think it's that inclusive when it comes to different types of people. And when there is a community event that invites other people from outside of that left-leaning, heavily politicized shop local community you see a lot of negativity. Like, for example, we have a fair here every year. It's kind of our, it's not the county fair, but it's the, it's the big thing. It's the big thing of the summer. And it's called Lake Fair. And they bring in rides, all kinds of things. And it attracts a lot of people from outlying towns. Like, it's not so big that people come from, you know, Seattle. It's not like people in Seattle are like, oh, I'm going down to Olympia for Lake Fair. You don't see that, but you do see people from outlying towns, and the outlying towns here tend to be more conservative, a lot of rednecks, a lot of blue-collar types. You know, there's, you know, just that's just what exists on the out, in the outlying towns. Like within maybe a 30 to 40-minute radius of this town, all of the outlying towns, they tend to fall into that category, a lot more blue-collar a lot of rednecks, a lot of that kind of thing. And I'm glad they exist. I think that creates a lot of balance considering how far left the actual city here is. I'm glad that the outlying towns are, you know, I'm glad there's these blue-collar outposts all over the place here. And those people, though, they, they'll come in, like those people aren't interested in I mean, for example, like just when talking about the aesthetic and and somebody who's very local oriented here, somebody who's part of this lefty local community here would get really mad at me saying this or they'd be offended. But there's something called the procession of the species they do, I think, twice a year, maybe once a year because they have what's called arts walk. And I feel like I'm just giving like some here's things to do in, in Olympia, Washington. You know, I feel like I'm doing that right now. I feel like I'm getting too specific. My skin is starting to crawl off my body. But anyway, as part of this arts thing, they they have people wear goofy animal costumes. And again, it just looks like somebody dumped random colors of paint all over everything. And they'll make these crafty costumes and they do a parade. And I'm not hating on it. I'm glad people enjoy it. I mean, I worked with a guy who, who told me the procession was his favorite thing every year. Like just favorite thing in life. He was an older guy, an older hippie guy, like a guy who used to be, you know, a Grateful Dead fan, probably still is a Grateful Dead fan, but used to follow them, something like that. He was like, the highlight of my year is the procession. And I was just like, oh, cool, but just not my thing. And I recognize that. I recognize that it's simply not my thing. Would I want them to stop doing it? No, I'm not heartless. I'm not evil. I think it's great that people enjoy it and do it, but it's just not my thing, and it does—it just does look like junk. It looks like a bunch of junk covered in splotches of color to me. Just not an aesthetic that I can appreciate, but I'm glad that people are into it. But needless to say, the people from these outlying towns, these kind of blue-collar, you know, redneck types, which I say with love, you know, I, I never use redneck pejoratively. I I just don't have a better word to describe people. And that's a word, too, that people have owned. Like, rednecks have, have claimed redneck. Like, if somebody's a redneck and you say to them, yeah, well, you're a redneck. Yeah, well, yeah, get out of here, you redneck. 
like they're going to be like, yeah, I'm a redneck. And then they're going to kick your ass, <laughs> you know, like like redneck is one of those words that has been used pejoratively that the people who are rednecks have claimed as their own. Like you'll see that on their cars. They'll have stickers that say redneck. They're proud of it. So I don't I'm not saying that to you know, belittle them. I'm just saying it because that's sort of what they are. What else are you going to call them at this point? It's a certain type of person. But yeah, they don't come into town for the arts walk. They don't come into town to watch a bunch of hippies and liberals wear goofy homemade animal costumes and march up and down the street, you know, in front of a gay pride float. They don't do that. They don't come into town for that. But they come into town for Lake Fair because that's a real pagan. Because that's the funny thing is, you know, I've said on the show before, I consider rednecks the real pagans, uh, at least closer to it. And they don't think about it. But, you know, they hunt. They're much closer to the earth. They live much more locally oriented lives, which is the funny thing about it. Like, you'll never see a redneck with a shop local sticker on their car. Although I'd love to see that shop local uh, redneck, <laughs> but uh, I'm a shop local redneck. <laughs> uh, but you'll never see a redneck with a shop local sticker on their car. But they're way more likely to get their meat, you know, from somebody they know. I mean, not all of them, of course. I mean, of course, there's many of them who just go to Walmart. But there's a lot of them. If you've known them, if you've actually known rednecks, which is I I have. You know, they live much more localized lives. And it's funny, though, because it's like they don't need to broadcast it. They don't need to to scream like shop local because their lives are simply more that way, especially if they are in smaller outlying towns. Because, you know, rednecks who live closer to cities, they, they do a lot more posturing. They have to really let you know they're a redneck. They have to really, like, scream in your face that I'm blue collar. You know, they have to really let you know. But when you do go to just even, I'm not talking about tiny towns. I'm not talking about towns in the middle of nowhere. But even just in this area, when you go to some of the smaller outlying towns, people just live far more local lives. And it's not something that they think about because it's simply how people have always lived. And that's paganism. And again, like I've been saying lately, you know, pagans will use any tool available to them as long as it doesn't horribly violate their own ethics. And that's why, you know, you'll see rednecks who just are staring at their phone. That's why if you've ever seen a rednecks like Facebook account, they have just these ugly selfies because it's like they don't it's just they're just using the tool available to them and they're not overthinking it. They're not worried about lighting. They're not sitting there like, I'm going to take a picture of myself and I have to stage it in such a way that the lighting hits my face on this side. They're just like, I'm going to take an ugly selfie that's going to be grainy and poor lighting. And they don't. it doesn't even cross their mind. And I recommend doing this, like looking at certain classes of people on social media. And you'll see that they'll make videos of themselves just going off. They'll make videos of themselves just for no reason, just going off about all kinds of things. And that's paganism, too. It's just like using a tool that's available to you, and they don't overthink it. Like, you'll never find a redneck who's like, when we eat dinner, we stack our phones in the middle of the table so that we don't check them. Like, rednecks are probably sitting there eating fried chicken, just like scrolling through their phones, just yelling at each other. I mean, of course, I'm making somewhat of a mockery here, but it's true. Like, they're not going to sit there and be like, let's talk about how social media is destroying our society and how, uh, you know, you should give yourself an hour every day where you don't check the notifications on your phone. You know, they don't sit there and have conversations like that. They're like way more in the moment now, I'm not, I'm, and I'm not trying to like go too far this and say like rednecks are the ones who actually experience true zen. Yo, rednecks are the kind of people like they're actually the ones living in a real zen state. If you want to experience a zen moment, go stay with your uh, your redneck cousins in the middle. Of, no, you know, I'm not saying that at all. I don't want to turn this into like me glamorizing like some lifestyle that I personally would be really uncomfortable with. Because that's the reality is, you know, 
while I, I certainly have some relatives like this, you know, on one side of my family, and I actually, I, you know, I, I love that they are the way they are, but I, you know, my mom grew up in that environment and she got away from it for a reason. And she was not that way herself. Uh, but, you know, so I am familiar with this. And I, the reality is I wouldn't want to be surrounded by it, even though I might be glamorizing rednecks by being like, the rednecks are the real pagans and and they're living in the Zen moment, uh, you know, even though I might be saying that and I do stand by that. The reality is I wouldn't want to live in that environment. It's not for me. I mean, imagine a, a redneck listening to what, I, what I'm talking about right now. Like, imagine listening, them listening to the things that I talk about on this show. I would get my ass handed to me, you know? It's like that. my sister had a friend. Her boyfriend had a friend when she was in junior high. And I think I've told this story on here before because I just never forgot it. But he told a story where he was like, he was like, yeah, last night, and, and these were blue-collar people. These were very blue-collar people. And he was like, yeah, last night my dad gave me a hug, and he patted me on the back. Like, you know, when you have somebody in a, in a hug, and then you just, like, pat him on the back while you're hugging them. And he's like, and I asked my dad while he was hugging me, I was like, why do people do that? Like, why do people pat you on the back while they're hugging you? And he's like, and then my dad just kneed me in the in the stomach in response. And uh, like I don't think it was some horribly abusive like like he need him like with full force you know but I think it was just sort of like don't ask stupid questions and I never forgot that story because it was just funny that he was telling us that but he's like yeah I asked my dad like why why do people uh, pat you on the back while they're hugging you and in response he just need me and that makes total sense to me because it's just like don't ask about that boy. Like, it's intuitive. You pat people on the back because it's, it's intuitive. Like, here his dad is hugging him, and it's just one of those intuitive things you do. Like, you then, to, to, further the, to further the embrace, you just pat somebody on the back. And it makes kind of a satisfying, weird, hollow thud. Uh, <laughs> I would get need for that. If I had said that, if I, if I had said, well, let, let me tell you, I'll explain for your dad why he does that. He does that because it makes kind of a satisfying hollow thud and it shows additional affection for you. And it's something to do with your hand while you're hugging somebody. I would get kicked in the face for that. But that is sort of what I'm talking about. The reason that I always remembered that story is because that's exactly what I'm talking about where the things that I talk about on this show are basically the equivalent of that question. I feel like this show is basically 300 episodes of me saying, why do people pat each other on the back in the middle of a hug? And that wouldn't be tolerated by a lot of people because it's just sort of like, you know, you don't ask questions like that if you're from a certain environment, maybe. It's for the same reason that blue-collar people aren't going to tell you to shop local. Real blue-collar you know, farmers, you know, yeah, there's, there's a whole thing now where farmers are like, support local farms. But, uh, you know, that's, that's also just a business thing, because they are businessmen. Um, but, uh, you know, for the most part, though, it's like blue collar people, rednecks, the real pagans aren't gonna like, have some campaign trying to get you to do something that is just natural to them. And it's for the same reason that they won't be like, yeah, when we eat dinner, we put our phones in the phone drawer so that we don't check them. No, they're scrolling through their phones with greasy fried chicken fingers because everything is just connected. Everything is like just congealed together for them. And that's why they're pagans because they're just in it. They are in it. And that actually gets into something that I, I want to talk about too. You know, because the middle class is disappearing. That's one of those slogans. I mean, you'll see, I mean, the same people who have shop local stickers will have signs in their yard that say the missing middle. And there are, of course, economic reasons why the middle class is disappearing. There are, of course, larger economic, social, and political reasons why it is more difficult to live a middle class lifestyle now than it was in, say, the 1950s. And I'm not an economist, but uh, I'll tell you what paganism is, 
you know, down to the smallest detail, which is it's rednecks scrolling through their phones while they're eating fried chicken at dinner, you know. Um, but I, I, I'm not an economist. I, I wouldn't be able to actually explain to you why the middle class is disappearing because of changes in our you know, our economic infrastructure, you know, I wouldn't be able to tell you all that. And I don't even know if I believe it totally, because I've just sort of taken it for granted that that's what's going on. But I don't have a reason to disagree with it either. I don't have a reason to challenge that. But an aspect of that that never gets talked about is that the middle class has also willed itself out of existence. While it might be more difficult, like obviously it's, you know, there's the interest rates on a mortgage are much worse today than they were in 1955, you know? So it's like, it's more difficult for a young person today to invest in say a house and to pay that mortgage every month than it was for their parents or their grandparents, grandparents. It's more difficult to do that. And that's what people are talking about when they talk about the middle class being squeezed out the middle class being squeezed into either the poorer classes or the upper classes. You know, that's what they're talking about. It's just one example is being able to invest, especially in property, something that was taken for granted in some ways by older generations and now is more difficult. And so that's, that's just one side of it. Uh, who knew, who knew that I was a junior economist? Who knew that I was a junior economist? I'll tell you all about uh, how how the change in interest on mortgage rates has squeezed the middle class out of uh, the property owning class, and uh, as a result, they're getting poorer. You know, but uh, you know, I, I believe all that. But the important thing too that I want to stress here is that the middle class has also psychologically willed itself out of existence as well because a phenomenon that I've noticed my entire life is people who are middle class don't want to be middle class especially people who are born into a middle class household and and a phenomenon that I noticed growing up was that and I grew up in a very middle class town I there were kids who were I, I would say most people were middle class, whether there were a lot of upper middle class people. Like I didn't grow up knowing any real country club, quote unquote, affluenza type rich kids. I just didn't know them. I think they were in the private schools. I know they were around. I know there were some very wealthy families, but among the people who were in my schools, part of my community, yeah, you had dads who owned businesses. You had dads who had good jobs, but I don't remember anybody seeming that far and a, that that nobody was really that far beyond anybody else um you know some families were able to take more vacations than others some families got new cars more often than others some families were able to build nicer houses than others but i don't nobody seemed like they were that far up there and then you did know some families who were poor or more likely on the lower end of the middle class spectrum, but it was definitely a middle class spectrum where most people fell somewhere within the parameters of middle class. And they could, and, and, and a reason, a, a, um, I think the greatest sign of that is the fact that so many of those people could co-mingle. Because the reality is if people are too fundamentally different if people are in too different of a financial position, it's actually very difficult for them to commingle. And you'll find that oftentimes people date based on a shared comfort. Like it's uncomfortable for a rich person to date a poor person and go to their house. Like even as kids. And it's the same for like a very poor person who dates like a rich boy and goes to his house. There's going to be a discomfort there. And those people, while they do get together, it's not that they don't. Of course, of course, rich people and poor people get together. Of course, Cinderella stories are real. But those people don't tend to mingle that often. And they don't tend to be that comfortable with the way that the other person is living. It's not always true. I mean, you do see more where like somebody who's poor will co-mingle with somebody in the middle class and somebody who's rich will do that you know it's the same thing like the middle class serves as a bridge between the upper and lower classes but those two very rarely meet because there's just a it's foreign 
It's not even that they completely judge each other, although they do, but it's not that they judge each other. It's just very foreign to them. But the middle class always served as a bridge. And the interesting thing about the middle class in my lifetime is it was not desirable, especially to kids who were born into it, maybe exclusively among kids who were born into it. And so what you saw was kids role-playing as other things. You know, you think about Wiggers, where basically white kids who are pretending to be urban black kids, they talk like them, they dress like them, they listen to the same kind of music. And what is that? It's actually the same thing as kids trying to be punks or hippies or trying to just seem like they're not from a comfortable middle class lifestyle. And, you know, when you're in that environment, like when you're in the moment, when you're in eighth grade and there's a kid on your left who's a wigger and a kid on your right who is a, you know, a mall punk, you don't think of those as the same thing because those interests don't seem analogous. You're like... Yeah, but he's a punk. He's he's a he's a, a punk who hangs out at the mall and he's a you know, this guy wishes that he was black. You know, they don't seem like they're into the same things and their interests are different. But what they're actually doing, the process they're going through, is pretty much the same. Both of them are trying to escape the comfortable middle class identity they were born into. Both of them wanna be something other than what they are. The trust fund hippie. You know, someone who seems like they're very earthy and they live, uh, you know, they're among the earth, you know, but, but really they have this safety net and so they, they want to belong to something other than what they are. And I'm not saying that there isn't a reason to be interested in those things in their own right, but you can see where teenagers especially are trying to escape some kind of identity that they were born into. And it's very associated with the middle class identity they have. Because the thing about a middle class identity in most cases is you don't have the resources of a rich person. I mean, there's a reason why you see a lot of very accomplished painters from centuries ago were noblemen. And not just painters, but poets, you know, philosophers. Many of them, if you read about their life history, they came from affluent noble families. I mean, the example I always go to is the painter John Martin, whose work is just incredible. These giant paintings of like hellfire bursting out of battle scenes and just moody, dark to light. You know, just if you're familiar at all with John Martin, you know what I'm talking about. And he was a nobleman. And it makes sense because a nobleman, in order to paint as well as this guy painted, you would have to be from a family that could get you the proper training and resources to paint these large, beautiful, colored paintings, just to be able to afford the paints, not to mention the training that he probably received to paint that well. Because, you know, beyond natural talent, you know, some of these paintings are just, they're rendered so beautifully, you know, there had to be some kind of formal training. And so, you know, there was, being wealthy gives you the the uh, resources to pursue intellectual, creative, and, you know, just those sorts of interests. It allows you to pursue something other than what's just there right now. And it doesn't make them better, but it just, it gives them that possibility. And, uh, you know, and with the, with poor people, you know, there are very there are people who do incredible things who come from incredibly humble backgrounds, and it's a struggle, and that struggle is a part of their story. You know, that's they might do incredible things, and they can always fall back on the fact that they came from adverse conditions. And we love that story, of course. You know, even rich people will invent stories of adversity. Even people who have had very comfortable lives will try to find some story of adversity. Not that people who come from rich backgrounds don't have adversity, because of course they do. But they there's something that we deeply admire about a poor person who does something with their life, especially creatively. And we have this idea that to be a creative person, at least in the modern era, you need to come from some sort of have-not background. 
But the middle class, they don't have the resources of the wealthy and they don't have the adversity of the poor. And so what are they going to do? They're just kind of there. You know, they're just kind of there. And it's it's less interesting in that way, too. Um, so it's only natural that people would try to be one or the other, that people would gravitate toward one or the other. And we saw this in the 90s and you know, before the economic crash of 2008, I guess it was, we saw where a lot of middle-class families were living way beyond their means. They were living off credit. You know, in the town I grew up grew up in, there was this huge shift where people started building and buying McMansions. People who were middle-class, and you knew they were middle-class. Like, you knew that this family didn't suddenly inherit $10, $10 million. But they were building these gaudy McMansions and they were trying to appear like they were now part of the wealthy class. They were now trying to appear like rich people. But you kind of could tell they weren't. You know, you could kind of get a feeling. Like some of these families were in the construction industry, which had a huge bubble at that time. And they were living above their means. But again, it's, a, it's what I'm talking about, where they weren't comfortable just living a stable middle class life. Even though they already lived in nice homes and had had accumulated, you know, stable middle class resources, we saw this push where they wanted to seem like they were a little bit more than that. And and that worked out poorly for them. Some of those people lost their houses. Some of those people were greatly humbled in the year in two thousand eight and the years after that. And a large part of it is because they weren't comfortable just being middle class. Just like the, these are families, these are adults, but just like the teenagers who weren't comfortable just being middle class, they felt the need to identify with something else. And, uh, you know, I, I know so many people who came from stable middle class lives and as young adults or adults, they became a barista and considered themselves a struggling artist. And they brag about, you know, this grocery outlet where I shop. I shop at Grocery Outlet, which is, you know, obviously the cheapest groceries you're going to find. And uh, but you'll you'll hear people brag about that. Like they'll be like, I shop at Grocery Outlet. Like they want to let you know that they're struggling and. You know, I just mentioned that I shop there. Maybe I'm doing the same thing by saying that. But you have people and they really want to broadcast. I mean, I know somebody who used to say, oh, rich people can afford to buy paper towels. Somebody I was close to used to say that, oh, rich people, like like she used, um, you know, washable, you know, reusable napkins, like cloth napkins and she used to say, oh, rich people can afford to buy paper towels. And it's like, have you ever been to a poor redneck's house? There's like napkins all over the place. <laughs> like, it's just so absurd to me. Like, I understood the point she was making, that paper towels and napkins, disposable napkins, are a kind of a wasteful resource. And if you're struggling financially, the idea of spending money on something that you're just going to throw out and probably not even use properly. Because I think about when I use paper towels and it's like sometimes I'll just grab one to like wipe down like a tiny thing. I only use part of it and then I throw it out. And so I totally understood what she meant, like in that this is a wasteful thing that you spend money on to just throw away. And that's a sign of, you know, having, you know, it's a, it's a sign that you can afford that. You can afford to just spend money on something that you're immediately going to throw away. But that said, the reality is if you actually go to a poor person's house, like a poor family, like, like let's just go with our my favorite thing in the world, a, a family of rednecks. Like if you actually go to their house, they're like wasting napkins left and right. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm dead serious, too. They're just like throwing napkins around like the whole house is just like a bunch of napkins covered in grime, like thrown on the floor. You know, of course, I'm making somewhat of a joke here, but it's true. Like, you'll see that, like, poor people don't think that way. Especially poor people from certain backgrounds. They don't necessarily, while they might not be able to afford paper towels, that is something they'll spend money on. 
like they're not you know they're not like oh use this cloth uh, use this piece of cloth to wash your hands they're just like give me I, I want to get this shit off my hands and then I'm going to do whatever I want with this napkin you know that's how they operate and of course an argument could be made yeah because you know some poor people waste their money on disposable paper towels that's how they stay poor and I don't I don't really love that line of logic I don't really like it when I don't love it when middle class and rich people talk about poor people and say, that's how they stay poor because they, they spend their limited money on big screen TVs. You know, I don't love it when people use that argument, even though there is truth to it. Even though there is truth to it that sometimes poor people are, are wasteful. They don't necessarily invest their money in things that matter. I mean, I knew a family that didn't have a lot of money that I was close to growing up. And they certainly fall into this category. They would be self-described rednecks. Oh, are you guys self-described rednecks? Knee to the balls. Knee, just a knee right to your balls. Self-described. But they would spend ungodly amounts of money every 4th of July on fireworks. Money that they couldn't, you know, money that they didn't have. I mean, they obviously had it. Because I'll tell you what, uh, those uh, those Native Americans who are selling you fireworks at the fireworks stand, they don't take credit. You got to give them cash. Can't put that, you know, you can't put that on credit. I'll tell you that much. So they obviously had the money, but they decided that they wanted to spend that money on fireworks to have a grand Fourth of July display. I mean, this family, they. I remember one year they bought all these illegal fireworks, and one of them was literally a golf ball. It was an actual golf ball that had been hollowed out and filled with pure gunpowder. It's amazing that they bought it and didn't make it, but they did buy it. And the dad put it in a cooler, just a big plastic cooler, and he lit it and and then put the lid on the cooler. And it, of course, blew the cooler apart. But the lid of the cooler went 50 feet in the air, just straight up in the air. I mean, it was probably the coolest thing I ever saw. And like, I, you know, I can get into fireworks. I'm not above fireworks. I like, I like these cool exploding displays, but that was probably the coolest thing I ever saw. It was just a, a, basically a bomb, a golf ball filled with gunpowder that blew up a cooler and caused the lid of the cooler to like, just, it was, it was like watching a ballerina or an ice skater, like this lid, it was almost like in slow motion, like this big plastic lid just went 50 feet in the air and it kind of twirled and shifted direction on the way down. It was, that was for me, like probably the way someone feels when they watch an ice skater they really like or a ballerina. But point being is this family, they would spend hundreds of dollars easily on fireworks for the 4th of July. And that was important to them because they're pagans and that's a pagan holiday. The 4th of July is a pagan holiday. And these snooty people who say like, oh, fireworks are, fireworks are lowbrow. Oh, America, do America much? America. Oh, red, white, and blue. Oh, I'm, I'm going to ironically wear red, white, and blue shorts and make fun of people who are celebrating our country in earnest. You know, you're not a pagan. You don't understand. I'll tell you what, you you with your shop local sticker and your opinion on Brexit, you don't you can't possibly understand a pagan holiday like the 4th of July and why a poor family of rednecks would spend an entire month's paycheck. <laughs> not that, not that they spent an entire month's paycheck, but why they would spend a substantial amount of money on fireworks to blow up a cooler. And have the lid of the cooler fly in the air and come twirling down like a ballerina or an ice skater. You know, you can't possibly understand the paganism of that. The raw and pure paganism of that. And you know what? Some of my most fun memories, some of the best memories I have of being a little kid were at these people's house. I mean, they had a birthday party one year. I was a good friend of their son and we played sports together. They taught me how to hunt. I went to hunter safety with this family. The the dad took me to a hunter safety class and I got my hunting permit, even though I never ended up killing anything, you know, still they took me through this. That's a pagan thing, hunting. And, uh, they took me to this, this class. And then there was one year though, when I, I just met this family, I was a little kid and the son had a birthday party and the dad had their garage open 
and he had he had just killed a deer. He had just hunted a deer, and he had it hang, hanging upside down with a big incision down the gut. And we were just playing around. We were running in and out of the garage. We were doing what little kids do at a birthday party, and we were basically dancing around this dead deer hanging upside down in the garage. And that's normal. Oh, is that a local deer? Oh, did you? Is that deer that you killed? Was that local? Do you kill local? Kill local, man. You know, imagine saying that to that guy. Knee to the stomach. Knee to the balls. You know, oh, is that a local deer? It's like, what do you think it is? That's what I mean. That's exactly what I mean. Where it's like this guy, you know, he he kills a deer locally and then he goes home and he and he eats Pringles. You know what I mean? It's like he doesn't, he's not caught up in like some hoity-toity aesthetic. He probably doesn't even know what a pagan is, but he is one. And, you know, that's just that's just exactly what I mean. I, I feel like that is the perfect illustration of what I mean. A dead deer, and in my memory, it's a buck. I mean, granted, that was probably, that was probably 30 years ago. It's probably 29 years ago, because it was when I first became friends with this kid. So I was probably five or six years old. And I, but I still remember the visual of this dead deer hanging up upside down. And they, they had this little dark garage that was around the side of the house. It wasn't like a garage that you see on the front of a house. It was like this weird little garage around the side of the house. And he had a Navy SEALs poster, not the movie Navy SEALs, but like a Navy SEALs recruitment poster that had these Navy SEALs covered in face paint, submerged in water. And so he had this this poster for like a Navy SEALs recruitment poster. And the dad wasn't even a veteran. Like the dad was never in the military, but he was into all that stuff. And so they had this Navy SEALs poster on the wall. You know, he loaded ammunition in there. You would see like bullet casings. He would load his own ammunition and things like that. And then there's just a big dead deer. And of course, my visual of it is that it had big buck horns, which it might have. But that might just be that might be where my memory is kind of making it more grand than it was. But either way, there was a dead deer hanging, and we were just kind of dancing around it. Uh, you know, that's a, a pagan birthday party. Oh, is this a, oh, I didn't know you were having a, a pagan-themed birthday party with this local deer. They would just stare at you. But, um... They, what I remember about that family, the kids in that family did end up getting into like hip hop and rap and kind of like, you know, picking up on a little bit of that kind of fashion. But for the most part, they weren't, that was just stuff to be into. That was just pop culture. What I remember about that family, though, is they were never really trying to be anything other than what they were. They were very out of place in the town that I lived in, and they were never really trying to be anything other than what they were. And like I was talking about, it's like, yeah, they would spend money on... I mean, I know they had napkins in that house. I know they bought paper napkins. Yet they're they're way poorer than the girl I knew who said that only rich people buy paper towels. But it's like, that just tells you a lot about somebody. When somebody says that only rich people buy paper towels, that just tells me they've never been to a poor person's house. Or they're, the only poor people they know are people... Are, are like struggling artists who work as baristas who, you know, are smart enough or cultured enough to know that you can have decorative cloth napkins that you can rewash. You know, it's one of those sort of things where it's like, uh, you know, that just tells me the sort of poor people that you've spent time with are probably from educated backgrounds and are, are poor almost by choice or because you've taken on some sort of, I'm not middle class, you know, sort of persona because you're trying to role play as something other than what you are. And and like I was saying a little bit ago, you know, I do think the middle class is disappearing. I think that's true. But I think it's as much because of external economic reasons as it is them willing themselves out of existence. Because, you know, thinking about my grandpa's generation or even my parents, you know, a middle class lifestyle was the goal. When they bought a house for their, to raise their family in, they weren't thinking, oh, this is just a stepping stone before I can become something else. They were like, this is the goal. 
You know, I served in World War II. I survived the Great Depression. I grew up, you know, if you look at my grandpa's generation, I grew up during the Great Depression. The idea of being able to buy a house, a one-story house with a yard, and yeah, interest rates were more favorable, but still, the goal of simply buying that house was a great goal. And you wouldn't think beyond that because that was an impressive enough goal in its own right. Being middle class was desirable. And, and the idea of middle class culture was still relatively new. The idea of living in suburbia, the idea of having a lawn, the idea of just having a stable job that could support that and could support a family and maybe having a cabin somewhere. The idea of that was all very desirable in its own right, and it wasn't completely normal. Because this sort of suburban middle class hadn't existed before that, not in the same way. You know, you had people who lived more rustic lifestyles. You had people who lived in the country, and they were typically farmers. They were typically self-sufficient. They were not wealthy, but they were self-sufficient. And then in the cities, you had, you know, ur urban poverty... But the idea of living in a place that was somewhere in between those and that was sustainable and it wasn't city life, but it wasn't rustic country life either, and it was comfortable, that was what it was. Being middle class was simply about being comfortable and maintaining what you have and maybe slowly acquiring other things. Like I said, maybe buying a cabin, maybe getting a boat or something. You know, but it, it was it was definitely slow growth, but with an emphasis on comfort. But then you have kids who grew up only knowing that. You have people who grew up in that environment, and that's all they knew, and it was boring to them. The idea of living in suburbia, the idea of living a comfortable life without the resources of a rich person, but also without the street credibility of a poor person, you're basically left to role play. And that's not to say a lot of kids didn't just embrace middle class life. You know, because I certainly knew a lot of kids where I grew up who just, they dressed, acted, and lived a simple middle class lifestyle and they were never looking for anybody else. But there were so many kids who weren't comfortable just doing that. There were so many kids who needed to look for something else. You had families who were trying to, they saw their suburban middle class life as a stepping stone toward being something more, toward being elite. Oh, we got we to gotta sell our decent suburban two-story house and build a McMansion that's way beyond our means. You know, you had families like that. You had people like that. You had kids. I mean, I knew kids who were middle class, but they would wear these expensive silver platinum chains, whatever they were, and nice watches, and they were very into, you know, designer clothing, but they were middle class. So you had, you had kids like that, too, who were trying to appear like rich kids when they really weren't. But you did have a lot of kids who were kind of role-playing that they were, that they struggled more than they did, and they brought that into adulthood with them. And the thing is, if you role-play as a poor person for long enough, you'll become poor. Like, even though you went to college and had family resources, if you role-play as a barista who's struggling to become a recognized artist or a musician for long enough, chances are you'll just become a poor person. Chances are you'll just will the middle class to not exist. The possibility of being middle class again becomes increasingly difficult the longer you role-play as something else, the longer that your persona becomes invested in that thing. So that's just an interesting thing that I've observed. And so it's we're almost at a point where it's like, oh, you know, you didn't want to be middle class. Here you had a middle class foundation, but you rejected it when you had it. And now that you can't have it now that it's becoming more difficult financially for somebody to become a stable middle-class citizen. Now you want it again. You didn't want it then. You didn't want it when you were 22. You know, when you were pretending to be something you're not, when you were pretending to be some, you know, when you, when you were looking for street credibility, 
you know, in your teens and 20s, the last thing in the world you wanted was just the ability to purchase a modest home and live a comfortable life. And now that you're realizing that street credibility got you nowhere, now you want that middle-class comfortable life. But guess what? You willed it out of existence and the elites did too. Turns out the elites were doing exactly what you were doing because they don't like the middle class either. You know, the elites look at the middle class and they think, hey, they're a little too much like us. They, they're a little too close to us for comfort. It'd probably be better if we can keep them down a little more. Let's push them out of the picture a little bit more because we don't really like them. Oh, and you know what? It turns out that the middle class hate themselves too. It works out that way. The elites love it. When the elites see middle class teenagers being like, I'm a punk, I'm an artist. I wish I was black. When they see teenagers and young people from the middle class role-playing and slumming it, they're like, well, hey, they're doing our work for us. They're keeping themselves down. So that's something to consider. And I don't think this is a conspiracy theory to say that the elites want to keep people down because it's what they've always done. The ruling class has always tried to keep people down. And I don't hate the ruling class. I understand that that's just a function of what they are. They don't want to have what's theirs taken from them. Just something to consider in all this. But shop local. Shop loco, baby. Have you shopped loco today? Shop, uh, hey, uh, hey, baby, uh, you want to go shop local with me? We're going to go buy local music. We're going to go listen to local music. Going to eat local ice cream. We're going to buy local paper towels to clean off our sticky fingers with. Are those local paper towels? Yeah, I only write on local paper. I only use local pens. I sign all my checks with local pens, baby. And, you know, the end result is, you know, we're all going to be shopping loco. We already are, but the future is loco. The future is not local. The future is loco. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.